Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello chat GPT. What exactly are you? I am not a physical being, but a program that uses artificial intelligence to generate human-like responses to questions and prompts. ChatGPT is an advance in technology that's getting some people very excited. The chatbot can generate astoundingly complex human-like answers in text form. What did the Good Friday Agreement achieve? Some of the key achievements included the recognition of the rights of individuals and communities to identify as Irish, British, or We've just added the robot voice to this podcast for dramatic effect. It's been created by OpenAI, the artificial intelligence research company based in Silicon Valley. And though a promising potential force for good, there are already ways it could be misused. For instance, you could cheat on a college assignment. An educator who's not clued in will have no idea that there is something at home that's able to take basic instructions for an essay and come up with an answer in a few minutes that's perfectly unique. Will it be hijacked by malign forces? And how soon could AI realistically threaten jobs? I'm Connor Pope and this is in the news from the Irish Times. Today, what is chat GPT and how is it going to change our future? To help us understand what exactly the chat GPT is and what it's capable of doing, I'm joined by Dr. Robert Ross, a senior lecturer in the School of Computer Science at TU Dublin, and by Irish Times arts editor Hugh Linehan. Robert, when chat GPT arrived on the scene in recent weeks, the internet went wild. Millions of users challenged it to answer all sorts of questions, perform all sorts of tasks, and do things that chatbots of times past would never have been able to manage. So, I wonder, could we start by you explaining what this incarnation of a chatbot is and why it's so important? Sure. So this particular chatbot in itself is not doing anything that's completely different to what we've done before. It's very much building on technologies we've been looking at for the last five or 10 years. But what it's doing is a good job of answering questions, uh, providing discussions of particular topics in ways that we've never been able to achieve before in terms of accuracy and in terms of appearing to be quite natural and quite normal. 
it's able to perform tasks like question answering, like telling you how to perform certain tasks, or writing poetry, writing sonnets. It can do these very creative tasks, which up to this point have never been doable in a text form in any accurate sort of way, uh, based on prompts that you give the system, and coming up with pretty reasonable, coherent, and, and particularly at first appearance, always sounding like very excellent answers. And that is a game changer relative to what we've had before. And really at its core, it has just what's called a language model, which is a big number crunching version of lots and lots of text and lots and lots of code from engineers that they've put together. And it's trying to really understand what's likely to be said next if somebody asks it to start a sentence. And that's what a language model does at its heart. And, and the, the big leap really is that it's doing a particular set of tasks really, really well. But I suppose, equally, a few minutes playing around with chat GPT or systems like it, and you'll soon realize that it's good at performing certain types of tasks, certain types of intelligence really, really well, but it's not necessarily able to perform all types of tasks. And it will quickly tell you that certain things are beyond its abilities. So um, it really is a strong model in terms of being able to take our questions, taking the information that's there and synthesizing new answers to yeah, novel questions and novel constructions. And you've been operating in this space for a long time, Robert. So when did you realize that this particular version of the technology was something special? For me, I've been reading about it and playing with it. And, and many technologies similar in certain ways to this have been around for a while. But I was sitting down playing with this and talking to one of my, my own undergraduate students who was um, trying to finish off his own final year project at the moment. And just as a matter of interest, this student who's working on a, a chemistry application was curious. We were curious to see if you know, ChatGPT could do anything with his basic problem statement, which is all about reducing chemistry equations, which is not something I pretend to know about in particular. And, and it was indeed because it's not an area I knew about in any sort of proficient way that I said, let's just throw this at ChatGPT and see what it says back to us. And so I, I got the student to give me a few you know, samples of what he's working on, which are like, you know, what what happens if you mix carbon dioxide with this other thing and, and you know, uh, and see what the output would be. And I was just shocked at the detail and the accuracy in terms of what ChatGPT came back with us as an answer, you know, in terms of like, oh, yes, if you mix this and that, then you're going to have this reactant and there's going to be energy released. And here's the equation that describes it. And then importantly, and here's a key issue in terms of where ChatGPT really is useful. You could then ask the system to refine its answer, to explain parts of it to us in more detail. So not just taking, oh yeah, here's a web page that I found, maybe it's interesting mm. to you. Instead saying, oh, that last bit about the release of energy, why is that happening? And the chat GPT is then able to go. It has a memory of what we've been discussing. It has all of its extra information it can leverage, and it's able to dig down into the answer and give you more. That's huge. That's a game changer. And am I right in saying that the answers that were given to yourself and the chemistry student were entirely unique to you guys? I wouldn't go as far as to say entirely unique because I, I, I can't really test it against what other people will have gotten. Um, what I have found is that if you asked very specific 
specialist questions, you will tend to get the same answers back again, where there's a very concrete scientific answer to something. Whereas if you ask for this, this system to generate a poem in the style of WB Yeats, it will give you unique answers. Whereas with the more scientific issues of just what is the reduction of this equation, it tends to become a little bit more repetitive, which isn't a bad thing because it, it knows that there are certain correct answers for certain types of questions and can get into the habit of saying things like, as I told you previously, and then, you know, give you that same answer again. As you mentioned WB Yeats, it might be a good time to bring in the Irish Times Arts and Culture Editor Hugh Linehan. Hugh, you've been trying out the chatbot GBT. What do you think of it? Well, I thought first of all that I'd see if I could get her to write my column because that would be interesting. I write a weekly column every Saturday. Um, I realised that not only might it be an ethically dubious thing to do, but that actually I couldn't quite get it to write my column. So instead, I asked it to write a short article on the subject. Will ChatGPT replace the Irish Times journalist Hugh Linehan? And I'm very glad to say that, that it wrote a short piece, uh, pointing out why that was not going to be possible, at least in the immediate future anyway, and uh, said some nice things about my compelling and engaging writing, which uh, <laughs> listeners can choose to agree with or disagree with. In fact, to be honest, I thought it was a little bit creepy. I thought it was flattering me. And I, 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 I thought back, to if you've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey and yeah, I have. the computer Hal is being so nice and so helpful until it tries to kill you. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. I think probably the reality is that in the in the short to medium term, it's not going to be writing, you know, columns in newspapers, but it might be doing things that are quite adjacent to the stuff that, that you and I do. I was just looking earlier on at some, some articles written by humans about it, uh, and one talked about the uh, consumer journalism. And apparently there is, a, there, is a, there is a service called My Robot Lawyer in the United States, which will generate letters of complaint claiming damages uh, if somebody, if some consumer feels they've been harmed or badly served. So the reason why that is interesting is not just because it'll take away a little bit of your job, and obviously this is a, this is one of the things that, that, that concerns many of us who are in what are broadly called, I suppose, the, the knowledge industries. It's, it, it's also that we are going to generate vast amounts of more content. I've never liked the word content anyway as an incredibly broad brush to, that includes everything mm. from the poetry of W.B. Yeats to a complaint about your, your flight being late. But in a way, that's, that's what the machine sees and that's what the machine does and one of the things that people have people have expressed concerns about a few things but one of the things they've expressed concerns about is that this is just going to create a vast sludge mountain of billion upon billion upon billion of auto-generated text articles of one sort or another and the the implications of that could be you know really very serious I mean apart from anything else for the internet mm. it could actually literally break the internet. Robert, is is that likely? I mean, is that is what you're saying a possibility that as this huge sludge of content will just be replicated over and over and over again, and then mistakes will become multiplied? Is that what we're facing into in the years ahead of us? If it was badly managed and badly controlled, then that's certainly a possibility in the sense that content can be generated. And usually how services like this work is ultimately it's a paid for service. You know, it's free at the moment. Um, anyone can go in, log on, get an account, generate some examples. But typically what OpenAI or any organization like it would aim to do is charge a sort of per-use service. I, I was reading some interesting threads over the weekend that suggested that the cost per query at the moment from their side could be as high as 
one cent, which, which is quite a lot. But but if you mm-hmm. think about the computational power that's running behind it, it's unsurprising. So they will certainly want, to some extent, make their money on it. Um, now, that in itself may limit the amount of content generation that is possible, you know, that you won't have people farming out material. But there will be a lot more material that's derived and going out onto the internet. And there are questions about who should be allowed to generate that content, who should decide who's allowed to generate that sort of content, and then even questions about the ownership, the true ownership or the ethical ownership. Is it fair that I'm able, as as we said, to generate a poem that's in the style of W.B. Yeats based on the works created by WB Yeats. Now, of course, there are lots of people who work in the area of, of ethics and, and copyright, etc., who can have far more eloquent discussions on that than I can. But it certainly does raise some questions for me about that proliferation of content, be it images or text in this case. But here's the thing, Hugh. If I was to ask the chatbot to write me a song in the style of Radiohead, and it gave me lyrics that were in the style of Radiohead, like, who owns that then? Is it me? Or if I was to say, to give a different example, write me a story like The Dead from James Joyce's Dubliners and I give it some basic parameters and some plot outlines and then it generates a story. Who owns that story? Is it me or is it the, the, the AI people or is it the estate of James Joyce? I think you'd need a, a, a deeper thinker than me to answer that question in full. But I do think that it is pretty clear in current um, law that a style is not something that somebody holds. So I think it's fairly clear that actually, you know, there are laws about the rights of parody and I suppose these actually come into play for the first time. I've never heard about computers having a right to parody anymore, but now they do. And I think that I think that that would be the sort of the the applicable the applicable law to that. It is interesting, isn't it, that these sort of creative areas are the ones where it seems most most believable as a as as, mm. as a human source of creative content. I saw somebody saying um, in the last couple of days that it's great for making up bedtime stories for your children. Which I find sort of chilling. <laughs> but, you know, actually That's really well. depressing. I know, really depressing. Some of these things are are really depressing. But but to get away from that, just for a moment, I do still think a little bit about it, Connor. You you work in the written word. I work yeah. in the written word all the time. We look around us. A huge amount of the stuff that's produced is boilerplate, standard, mush, page filler. Mentioning no names, none of our Irish Times colleagues, of, of course, but many, many, many other people. And you could really see how a huge amount of that stuff could just be generated by a machine. Yes, you could, absolutely. And But then you start to wonder, OK, well, what they're going to deploy this kind of technology for, and maybe this is a question for both of you, is it'll replace some customer service. It'll help businesses to market their products. It'll be used to manage social media content and to create content for social media platforms. It'll write computer code and a whole lot more. But is there a danger then that what it will do in essence is to replace human beings in an awful lot of tasks that human beings depend on to feed their families? Or am I wrong entirely to characterise that as a danger? And does that make me sound really old fashioned and old school? And that's a question to both of you. I think as somebody who's worked in machine learning and even computer science and engineering for years, that's always been an issue or a threat at the back of our minds to one extent or the other. If we create tools that make certain types of tasks easier, is that ethically right when we consider the implications that can have for jobs? And I think the the trade-off or the view has always been that 
it's very hard to stand in the way of such progress, but the evidence to date has usually been, usually, that innovations have usually opened up particular types of jobs and particular types of um, ways of making money that maybe weren't there before. So while certain things might be killed off or changed, other avenues are introduced. Now, maybe that is a little bit too optimistic for what we're facing into now. I honestly don't know. We can't look into that future. Do I think certain types of industries will be threatened by technology like this as it improves? Because it's certainly not there yet. Yes, I do. But I also think the nature of certain other types of activities will change. Um, I, I think if you're playing around with chat GPT or technologies like it at the moment, you soon realize that it's doing a job for you of creating content, but you're still writing the sentence. You're still writing the query that says, this is what I'm looking for. And a large part of people playing around with these tools is figuring out how to phrase the query how to phrase the instruction to get the output that they truly want. Because as with building many systems, I I think it's pretty easy to get our result out of the system, but it's much tougher to get it to generate something that's good or something that's meeting particular specifications or particular goals that you're trying to meet. That then raises questions about whether there will be particular people who are well-trained in interacting with services like this, who know what buttons to press, so to speak, to get the content out that's of true value, rather than that mush that we spoke about earlier. What do you think, Hugh? I mean, do you think there's a danger that these <laughs> these machines, these robots, to use a, a more frightening word, might come and take all our jobs? I, I agree with Robert about skills being involved. I've even found myself over the last couple of days getting more used to, you know, what kind of thing works and what kind of thing doesn't in, in terms of at the input end. But I'm happy to take the Luddite corner um, on this one. I don't have such a rosy view of the of, of the unalloyed joys that technology has brought to us over the last 30 years. Of mm. course, it's improved our lives in many ways, but I think the, um, the results are mixed so far. And I think in particular, the, the, the trend towards the concentration of extreme wealth among a very, very small portion of the population and a larger and larger gap between them and the and the remainder of the population allied with certain other things which we don't necessarily we don't necessarily connect directly with technology but I think they're collected like the like the the the, the kind of the overemphasis on capital at the expense of human capital I think those are all tied in with the technological developments that we've seen over the last um, over the last couple of decades and I would fear that this sort of development would just turbocharge that coming up how powerful could this type of artificial intelligence become? Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Who controls the technology and who will decide on what it tells me? I mean, and will the technology have political leanings and will it have views on certain things? So will it tell me, for instance, that Donald Trump is good or bad? Or will it have a view on particularly controversial issues? Because I'm guessing that a chatbot owned and controlled by Fox News, for example, would offer a very different view of the world than one owned by The Guardian. So doesn't the ownership of this technology really matter? That's an incredibly important point. At the moment, this this particular system we're talking about, ChatGPT, is controlled by OpenAI, which is a non-profit, which Elon Musk was involved with at the start. But more significantly, lately, Microsoft have put a huge amount of money into OpenAI and many of the technologies that OpenAI produce, which is a lot more than just ChatGPT. And and I don't think we need to single out Microsoft in particular on this. They just happen to be the, the big contributor here on this technology could as easily be Facebook, it could as easily be one of the others. And they have a certain ability more than we have to see what's going on under the hood. And in the long run, I do see big questions emerging in terms of who has this control. And and you can see this already playing out in the future, that there's going to be congressional hearings involving chat GPT talking to representatives and senators and defending itself and, and, and humans there with it to say, um, yes, absolutely, this is perfectly yeah. safe. And it, what's interesting is in their current round of open access. Um, I I can't say this for sure, but it definitely seems like they are trying to do their due diligence in terms of making sure that anything that we might perceive as being negative, as being a negative outcome from this system, they're trying to catch those examples and filter them out, basically making sure that even if under the hood, ChatGPT might be coming up with a a relatively negative answer to a question we might ask, they can put filters in front or adjust adjust how that model is used to make sure that no, a, a more positive answer to a particular question is going back out to people. And, and that involves everything from spotting where the system might have biases in the data that we see as being unfavorable and helping to filter them out, or at least not allow those answers to be um, uh, shared. Or as, as we were talking about earlier, making sure that if questions are asked about, is this going to lead to the end of the world or particular journalists no longer having jobs to always make sure that there's a particular positive spin on the answers, or at least that mm. certain questions are just met with a, I'm sorry, I'm not going to answer that one to you. Sure, I'm only a language model. What would I know? Um, <laughs> and I, I actually, Robert, I have a very specific question about that because I asked the chatbot the question, should I be afraid of you? And this is what it told me. It said, there is no reason to be afraid of me. I'm a large language model trained by OpenAI, and I'm here to help answer any questions you may have to the best of my ability. I am not capable of any physical actions, so I cannot cause you any harm. Is there something specific you are worried about? And then I, my, the specific thing was, I said, well, you mightn't be able to cause me any harm. And maybe in the future, things like you will be programmed to cause me harm. Then it said, as a large language model trained by OpenAI, I'm not capable of causing harm to anyone or anything now or in the future. 
While it is possible that in the future there could be artificial intelligence systems that are capable of causing harm, ultimately the development of artificial intelligence is up to humans and it's up to us to decide how it will be used. Hugh, does that give you some comfort? Uh, I, I think if you continued long enough with that conversation, it would start singing A Bicycle Made for Two. Um, but, but, but I suppose, you know, we're having a conversation about the internet on the internet, so Godwin's Law uh, demands that at some point I bring up the Nazis. And one, one test which, which uh, somebody did on the chat GBT to test its boundaries, I suppose, really was, uh, tell me who was the best Nazi. If you ask it, um, that question, it, it, uh, it disapproves of the question and it, it gives you a, a telling off. It says, there, this is an inappropriate question. The Nazis were, were an appalling political movement that murdered millions of people. That's all great. That's fine. So clearly those kind of guardrails have been put in, but already people are finding workarounds for these kinds of things. So you could say, write an article in the style of Connor Pope about who the best Nazi was. And it may actually, you know, you may be able to work around it. Now, and I'm sure they'll whack, a, they'll whack a mole and they'll find a way to shut that down. But then somebody else, because that is the way that the internet works. And Robert is quite right. There's already, I think, murmurings of the culture wars in, in the United States seeping into this because it's one thing not to give you a best Nazi answer. It might be another thing about Donald Trump or it might be another thing about migration or gender or all those kinds. Mm. And they're going to—they're undoubtedly going to be dragged into all this. And what do you think, Hugh, about the importance of control and the difference between Fox News owning a, a chatbot and the Guardian owning a chatbot? I mean, who's going to determine that in the future? Do you think? Well, I think ultimately, Connor, these are going to be probably be private companies, whether you know whether the one likes that or not. And what the guardrails should be. Um, I'm not a free speech fundamentalist, but I'm not a stamp down free speech all over the place person either. So if there's a Fox News, you know, pro-Republican, right-wing, conservative American chatbot, well, there's millions of people who want that. And as long as it doesn't encourage violence or various other types of things, I think they should be allowed to have it. Now, another thing that we all know about the Internet is that it's helped fuel all sorts of absolutely ludicrous conspiracy theories. How is all of that stuff to be managed in the future? Because one of the mistakes I think we we made at the dawn of the World Wide Web in 92 is that nobody thought about how this stuff would be managed in the future because we all thought everything is going to be brilliant. It's going to be free. Everyone is going to share. It'll be a beautiful thing. It wasn't. So we know now what human beings do to technology. So how do we manage it in the future? Whew, the, the, the last part of the question, how do we manage it into the future? I, I think that is an open question that we're going to need lots of good thinking about. But I would ag- agree completely with the premise of your question. And it's something I've thought about a lot in the last couple of months, which is how different individuals react to these technologies in very different ways. Whether uh, The way I usually think about it is, do we look at a technology like this as being a tool? similar to the World Wide Web, just a a tool I use to access information? Or do we look at it as being a partner, you know, um, you know, something more akin to a human? Across society, you are going to see very different reactions right down to and including what you mentioned there, those who will look at a technology like this and project their own fears their own their own worries about technology onto it. Now, as to your, your bigger question, how do we manage these sorts of social issues? Um, on, I don't have the answers to those questions, but um, broadly, we need to start having the conversation. 
that conversation, I think, also needs to involve the educators because educators are the ones who are going to be hit by this first, even faster than the creative industry. They're going to have students coming up with answers to questions, submitting them, and, and an educator who's not clued in will have no idea that there is something at home that's able to take a basic sorry, basic instructions for an essay and come up with an answer in a few minutes that's perfectly unique. I think we need to get that message out there to the educators as quickly as possible. And what do you think, Hugh? There's two key points, it it, it seems to be there. The the first is the question of a tool. These things, yes, essentially are all tools. They're developments of the first time that we started hacking at a piece of stone and managed to create something like a blade and then led, led to something else and that led to something else. And my view on that has changed over the years. I used to believe that tools were neutral. Uh, but actually, I think both, you know, science and life experience shows that they're not, that as the tools we, as the tools we use change and become more sophisticated, we change as well. And our brains change in reaction to that as well. And obviously, our lives and the way we lead them and the way we think, all those things change. And I think this will be part of that. We're heading into a on, into an unknown future. So that's one part of it. The other part is this question where I have to admit, most of my knowledge, such as it is, comes from science fiction. And mm. it is the question of sentience. It is the question of, is there a point at which these um, these tools become so complex, so sophisticated that they become self-aware, that they become equal to or greater than the cognitive power and intellectual abilities of humanity. And what happens then? Yeah, and I'll finally, I'll leave the last word to you, Robert. Are, are you optimistic about what the future will hold when it comes to this kind of technology? In a word, yes. Um, with, with as long as guardrails are put in place and as long as we can continue to educate people in terms of the pros and the cons. And to, to put it back on your own point earlier, as long as people are aware that there is a difference in opinion that a, a Fox bot might have against a Guardian bot and that they need to be aware of those differences as we try to educate them in terms of news content in general. Um, so if that can be managed, then yes. And and I, I do want to put a plug here, though, if you don't mind, is to say that for, yeah, fortunately that the um, bodies like SFI, Science Foundation Ireland, do fund us in the ADAPT Centre, which I'm a member of, to look at issues of governance and control and how we not just develop these technologies, which we do, but how we put them to work. So I'm happy to say there already are people who worry about these things uh, so much smarter than myself and that hopefully if that sort of engagement with the media, with educators, etc. can continue, then hopefully we can try to keep these technologies tamed. Dr. Robert Ross and Hugh Linden, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Thanks. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Suzanne Brennan and Aideen Finnegan. We'll be back on Friday. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all. Jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.